Um, so there are many ways to assess Catherine the Great's relationship with something called the Enlightenment. How extensive and genuine were her connections with the French philosophes? Did her policies produce real progress towards ideals like freedom? Or does her repression of the writings of the philosophes and of native Russian writers like Radishev demonstrate that her enlightenment was just a sham, at least at the end of her reign? But rather than ask if Catherine lives up to an ideal version of the enlightenment that we as later students of the period have constructed, I would like to investigate what, if anything, the enlightenment might have meant to Catherine. Rather than limit myself to the highly problematic tale that posits the work of the philosophe as both the intellectual essence of the Enlightenment and par as part of a historical narrative leading directly to the French Revolution, I would like to explore alternative narratives of the Enlightenment that are found in Catherine's many correspondences. Her private correspondence with Friedrich Melchior Grimm is a particularly rich source um, within that corpus. Grimm was a secondary figure of what we now call the French Enlightenment, he was a German who first traveled to Paris as a tutor to a German nobleman, and he there befriend, um, befriended Rousseau and the Encyclopédiste. He is best known in the world of French letters for a pamphlet contribution to the Carrière des Bouffons and for the Correspondance Littéraire, which we mentioned before, a manuscript periodical which he edited and which spread news about the cultural life of Paris to several crowned heads of Europe, including Catherine herself. In later years, though, Grimm distanced himself from his old friends. He visited St. Petersburg twice in 1773-74, at the same time as Diderot, and then again in 1777. And there he developed a close collaboration with Catherine. Um, meeting regularly one-on-one -on -one, uh, during his visits, Catherine and Grimm continued their chats in a lively correspondence. Grimm quickly became Catherine's primary cultural agent in Europe, managing her purchases of artworks and sponsorship of writers. By the end of her reign, he was the official Russian envoy in Hamburg. The personal correspondence with Grimm is of particular interest for assessing Catherine's relationship with anything one might call the Enlightenment because of its size, the unparalleled freedom of tone and literary verve with which Catherine writes, and the period of time it covers from 1774 through the French Revolution um, until Catherine's death in 1796. In addition, the correspondence, both controversial figures on the Enlightenment scene, make understanding trends in their contemporary world into a key theme throughout the epistolary exchange. This correspondence is far more voluminous than any of Catherine's exchanges with other Westerners. While the correspondence with Voltaire consists of less than 200 letters total, um, the incomplete 19th century edition of the Grimm correspondence, excluding political reports and other supplements, amounts to about 400 often very lengthy letters, many of which take the form of near diaries kept over three months at a time. As we've already said today, the past 30 years or so have seen a number of revisionist interpretations of the Enlightenment. Scholars have asked whether the Enlightenment consisted of many national Enlightenments or a pan-European phenomenon, whether the Enlightenment was an intellectual movement or a pattern of legal reforms and social practices, for example. Dan Edelstein in The Enlightenment of Genealogy posits an alternative account of the Enlightenment as essentially the awareness of living in an enlightened age. For Edelstein, the Enlightenment is a narrative self-consciously developed by an educated elite, then adopted by the philosophe, which asserts that, and I quote Edelstein here, the present age, siècle, was enlightened, éclairé, because the philosophical spirit of the scientific revolution had spread to the educated classes, institutions of learning, and even parts of the government. Edelstein's formulation offers an intriguing frame for analyzing the correspondence between Grimm and Catherine. 
Far from simply accepting this narrative of the Enlightenment, the two correspondents develop and critically examine various narratives about their contemporary world, employing separately in the process the key terms identified by Edelstein, such as philosophe or philosophique, philosopher, philosophical, lumière, enlightenment, light, éclairé, enlightened, and siècle, century or age. In the course of their exchange, the Empress and the Franco-German man of letters explore at least three conceptions of the trends and significance of the age that we as later observers might call the Enlightenment. They discuss the existence and role of a group called the philosophes. They entertain the question of whether or not their siècle, their age, is enlightened or at least more advanced than previous, more advanced than previous ones. And they ponder the possibility of the continuing spread of culture and civilization throughout the world. In this paper then, I will examine how these three narratives are developed and how Catherine and Grimm position themselves and eventually Russia in relation to these possible enlightenments. So the great monument of the enlightenment, the Encyclopédie, in the article Philosoph, does not apply this name as we do today to a particular group, namely the thinkers and writers mostly gathered around the Encyclopédie itself. But instead, this article ascribes, or describes excuse me, the philosoph in fairly non-specific terms as, quote, an honorable man who acts in everything according to reason and who joins to a spirit of reflection and precision, morals and sociable qualities. Catherine, however, views the philosophe from the start of her exchange with Grimm as a social group with a fairly well-defined identity, but one that does not constitute, this group does not constitute the unique center of intellectual life in her times. In 1775, the philosophe clearly represent an important source of cultural information for Catherine. She asks messieurs des philosophes, qui ne fait point sect, so who are not a sect, for a plan of an education system for Russia. And she also demands that Grimm describe for her Hubert's paintings of Voltaire, writing, listen, philosophe, without your descriptions, I may not understand your paintings at all. Catherine, by quoting with irony what was perhaps Grimm's own assertion that the philosophes are not a sect, insists that the philosophes uh, in fact, are already a rather dogmatic association with a set role as cultural and educational mediators and informers. If in 1775, Catherine was eager to make fairly broad use of the ideas of the philosophic sect, although primarily in the um, fields of education and culture, in 1785, she sought to delimit more clearly the role of the philosophe as one source among many for specifically cultural advice and thereby to keep the philosophe out of the political sphere on which they were making more and more vociferous demands. This shift in Catherine's treatment of the philosophe matches a progression traced by Hans Ulrich Gumbacht in his conceptual history of the term philosophe. He writes that in the year 17, that the year 1776 to 78 saw a radicalization of rhetoric amongst the philosophe and an increasingly triumphant sense of their militant social and political role. In November 1785, Catherine mocks Louis XVI for subjecting himself to various failed approaches to finance. Quote, he has tried out the Turgot, the Necker, and the present hodgepodge. All had their own ways of thinking, economists, philosophes, purse-pressers. The same letter contains Catherine's sharp reaction to the criticism she found amongst the recently deceased Diderot's papers, namely the unpublished Observation sur le Nacaz. She writes, criticism is easy, but art is difficult. That is what one can say when reading these observations by the philosophe, who for his whole life, it seems, was prudent enough to live under supervision. Philosophen, or philosophe, 
are for Catherine, a type or group of thinkers particularly given to abstract thought and who often make misguided claims to a role in government. The conflict between philosophie and political activity is a major theme in the correspondence due to the tension that exists within Grimm's own self-presentation, a tension that continues to trouble views of him as a historical figure. How can one reconcile his participation in the circle of the philosophe with his penchant for careerism in the service of princes? Around 1770, he called himself a subdeacon of philosophy, sous-diacre de la philosophie. Catherine opens her second surviving letter to him, dated 1774, with the words, first of all, Monsieur de Philosophe, but she stops using that epithet in 1778. Already in January 1776, Catherine jokes about the instability of the combination of philosophy and political responsibilities. When Grimm is in Italy in the service of the Duke of Saxe-Gotha-Altenburg, Catherine mocks him with the paradoxical epithet, Mr. Ambassador Philosopher. The withdrawal from society that is expected according to the stereotype of the philosophe is incompatible with the political role that members of the philosophic clan now claim for themselves and which is represented by Grimm's service of the Duke. By November 1776, though, Grimm proclaims that, thanks to Catherine's intervention in his life, he is no longer a philosophe. Her favor has given him ambitions for advancement in the world, and so, upon reviewing his finances, he discovers that, quote, this income, insufficient to provide, or sufficient, excuse me, to provide the philosophe with bread, becomes too small for a grandee like me. To a certain extent, Grimm is playing on the ambiguities present already in the image of the philosophe in the Encyclopédie. The article Philosophe replaces the image of the withdrawn, even virtuously impoverished philosopher with a very different and seemingly contradictory one of a philosophe living en société, in society, meaning a certain level of high society inspired by the court-derived values of the honnête homme or the honorable man. According to Grimm, Catherine's favor has pushed him even beyond the level of wealth and power appropriate for this sociable kind of philosophe. When in 1781, Diderot accused Grimm, you have become, without suspecting it perhaps, one of the most hidden, but also the most dangerous of the anti-philosophe, Grimm may not have entirely disagreed with him, as he no longer saw himself as a philosophe, but rather as something of a grand seigneur, a grandee. Diderot's ac accusation follows an account of Grimm bragging about his privileged access to Catherine, an anecdote which demonstrates that Grimm's image as a courtier came into conflict with the political <coughs> critical role of the philosophe advocated by Diderot in the piece in question, the Lettre apologétique de la Bérénale à Monsieur Grimm. It is in fact Diderot who plays the role of the quintessential philosophe in the correspondence, as confirmed by Grimm, who imagines him setting up shop under the business, business name of Master Denis Diderot, the philosophe. The correspondence described Diderot excuse me, as being given to such a degree of distraction and abstract thought that he is disqualified for practical participation in politics. For example, Catherine tells Grimm to thank Diderot for remembering me at the new year. I'm surprised he remembered there was one. She thus se seeks to render unthinkable the role of political denunciators and reformers sought by the philosophe in the 1780s. Catherine, logically enough, therefore, explicitly places herself outside the group of philosophes. She concludes the previously quoted request for a plan of an education system from Messieurs les Philosophes with the statement that, while waiting for you to acquiesce or not to my entreaty, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip through the encyclopédie. Oh, for certain, I shall grab by the ears everything that I need and don't need. She intends to make use of the philosophe intellectual and cultural resources 
but in her own fashion, remaining outside their group. The self-depiction is an outsider, a perverse wit or esprit gauche, someone who extracts what she wants from other sources and appropriates it in her own manner, was translated into visual form as Catherine's personal emblem, bees taking pollen from a rose bush to their hive, with the motto Palyaznaya, the useful. This image also constitutes an essential part of Catherine's self-positioning with respect to the intellectual, trades, ten, intellectual trends of her age, and therefore to what one might call the Enlightenment. Catherine's response to the events of the French Revolution provide another important caveat to any quick judgment of her as an anti-philosophe. For all their resistance to militant, politicized philosophie, initially neither Catherine nor Grimm buys into the myth actively fabricated by the revolutionaries that portrays the revolution as the direct legacy of the philosophe. In 1790, Grimm observes that France has fallen prey to a heap of lawyers of empty heads passing themselves off as philosophes. As late as the 5th of December, 1793, Catherine concurs, sharing Grimm's awareness that the revolutionaries have hijacked the ideas, language, and very identity of the philosophe. She tells Grimm that, quote, that, sorry, that the French philosophes, who are believed to have prepared the French Revolution, made only one fatal mistake, namely the assumption that their ideas would be heard and taken up by good people. Instead, and here I quote, prosecutors, lawyers, and all villains have covered themselves in their principles so that under this coat, which they have quickly shaken off, they could, could commit all the most horrible things that the most dreadful villainy has ever done. Catherine believes that the philosophes are not guilty, only misguided. Even their principles could serve as a cover only for the early stages of the revolution, not for the terror that reigned in late 1793. However, the execution of King Louis XVI in January 1793 had already clouded Catherine's lucidity concerning the fabricated links between philosophie and revolution. On the first anniversary of her own coup after the king's execution, 28th of June 1793, Catherine, for the first time, expresses an acceptance of the connection between the Jacobin and the philosophe. Quote, I'm going to accuse you of being a Jacobin, enemy of kings. Do you remember, at the masquerade at Peterhof, when the two tyrants of the north met the philosophe and how they berated him? She references and elaborates this anecdote twice more in the correspondence. It seems that at a masquerade at Peterhof in 1777, Catherine and Gustav III of Sweden, dressed as Capuchin monks, accosted the Grimm, Grimm the philosophe and accused him of wanting to destroy religion and monarchy. In her letter of the 11th of February, 1794, in the midst of the terror, Catherine goes further, taking part herself in the myth-making linking the philosophe with the revolution. Not only does she conflate the Peterhof anecdote with an entirely separate one concerning Frederick II and Helvetius, she also falsifies the history of Grimm's identity, writing, remember as well that you never wanted to be counted amongst the philosophes. Even if Grimm quickly distanced himself from his former identity as a philosophe, he did at one point act as a mouthpiece of the philosophe in the Correspondance Littéraire and indeed associate himself with philosophie. The element of fear and reaction in Catherine's response is clear. Especially on, this, on the 6th of April, 1795, she still seems to be pleading with Grimm to absolve in her mind those from whom she had once borrowed many of her ideas. On this occasion, she again recalls the Peterhof masquerade and calls on Grimm to justify his former friends and her former source of the useful. Quote, I will await without complaint the, auspici the auspicious moment at which you will be pleased to vindicate in my mind the philosophes and their apprentices for having a share in the revolution, 
and most of all in the Encyclopédie, even though Helvétius and d'Alembert both admitted to the late King of Prussia that that book had only two aims, one to abolish the Christian religion, one royalty. We see a myth in the making. From a recollection of a joke, Catherine builds a conspiracy theory which gathers more and more figures, first Frederick II of Prussia and Helvétius, then d'Alembert. Nonetheless, even in 1795, Catherine recalls that the philosophes' ideas could have been put to better use and wonders whether they are truly responsible for the revolution. She and Grimm leave open the possibility of alternative narratives of the Enlightenment. As one such alternative narrative, in the early years of their correspondence, Catherine and Grimm look for an age of Enlightenment, or siècle éclairé, that did not include, or rather preceded, the misguided political pretensions of the philosophes. Initially, Catherine and Grimm agree that their age was an enlightened one, but that this age ended in 1778 with the death of Voltaire. On the 17th of December, 1778, Catherine revisits a prophecy repeatedly enunciated by Voltaire, for example, in a letter where he states that, the time will come, madame, I say it still, when all light will come to us from the north. Your imperial majesty can say what she likes, but I make you a star and you will remain a star. In her letter to Grimm, Catherine credits Voltaire with being the spark of the Enlightenment, which she calls by name as Lumière. According to her, the Lumière kept by Voltaire has died out in France, but it will be one day revived in Russia, which she situ situates in the East, perhaps to avoid giving her rival Gustave III credit as enlightened. O oh, Voltaire, you were the one who knew how to rekindle the sparks remaining in the ash. The fastidious age of de la Harpe and company will come, until the time when the eastern star rises, yes, yes, it's from there that the light will return. In July 1779, Grimm concurs that Voltaire belonged to the category of individuals who leave long darkness behind them. The term lumière is accordingly absent from his pessimistic view that light and enlightenment are missing in Europe. He says, it seems only too certain, madame, that all that was illustrious and produced in this century by the arts and letters is destined to perish before the year 1780. If there was an age of enlightenment then, it was that of Voltaire, who represents the conjoined principles of religious toleration, government by great kings like Henry IV and Louis XIV, and elegant taste in art and literature. Voltaire's battle against l'infâme, or re religious fanaticism, is the most explicit political sense with ca which Catherine attributes to the term éclairé. Speaking of convents and other church institutions, she gloats that Russia has joined the most enlightened nations in getting rid of them. She says, these institutions usefulness for humanity, however, has been so perfectly recognized in the most enlightened countries that we have consistently studied how to reduce their number. Grimm agrees that the principle of toleration is at the core of the enlightened age now perpetuated by Catherine. Referencing the persecution um, by the inquisition of Spanish reformer Pablo de Alavide, Grimm points out that their siècle is only partially enlightened. Quote, the 18th century of the Hermitage or of Sasque-Suor and that of Madrid or El Escorial are not contemporary. That is not possible. When it comes to good government more generally, Catherine seems to find the principles of courtly elegance inseparable from the notion of enlightened rule. When Catherine deifies Voltaire as the divinity of gaiety and the god of charm, her aesthetic preference bears a certain political content. This meaning is rendered explicit, for example, in a letter of 1795, when Catherine expresses her disgust with the new style of painting represented by émigré artist Elisabeth Vigée-Lebrun. Catherine explicitly contrasts Vigée-Lebrun with Charles Lebrun, painter to Louis XIV. 
She says, in the time of Louis XIV, the French school of painting promised to paint with nobility and to join wit with nobility and charm. For Catherine, a monarchical government and a sense of nobility are inseparable from good style in art and literature. In 1790, she asks, what will the French do with their best authors, who almost all lived under Louis XIV? Voltaire himself, all of them are royalists. They all preached order and tranquility and all that is opposed to the system of the 1,200-headed hydra. That's the Assemblée Nationale. Thus, Voltaire, even during the Revolution, represents for Catherine a coherent ideal. True light can be found in great leaders upholding good government and good artistic tastes. The Revolution thus led Catherine to formulate more explicitly a rather pessimistic view of history. She does not believe in either continuous progress or even in temporary golden ages. Rather, she sees history as a long progression of equally dark ages, illuminated only by a few great figures who achieve great things that may or may not be upheld by later generations. By 1791, the revolution has proven to Catherine that the 18th century was no more enlightened than any other. She says, the end of this century has demonstrated that this much vaunted 18th century is not worth a farthing more than the ones that preceded it. This sense of the futility of a supposedly enlightened age is confirmed in a later letter from 1793. The lovely treat of seeing a kingdom fall into villainy, quote, was reserved for the 18th century, which previously had bragged of being the most gentle, most enlightened of centuries, and which has given birth to horrible souls amidst the most renowned of cities. The project of enlightenment is therefore a failed one. Instead, the 18th century is just like the Iron Ages, in which darkness and ugliness reign with a few bright spots here and there. Catherine calls her century this ugly Iron Age, in which there are nonetheless some beautiful princes, princesses, who will incidentally marry her grandsons. Usually, though, these bright spots are illustrious individuals, kings like Louis XIV or writers like Voltaire. When Catherine repeatedly asserts that what France needs is a superior, skilled, courageous man who rises above his contemporaries and perhaps above the century itself, her call, curiously prescient of Napoleon, echoes her conception of history as requiring a resplend resplendent leaders amidst the darkness. At this very time in 1791, the Pantheon in Paris was being created and Voltaire inducted into it. Catherine's construction of her own anti-revolutionary Pantheon stands as a counterpoint to the history of great man worship in France in the 18th century, which, according to Jean-Claude Bonnet, irresistibly created a republican pantheon in which the king no longer had a place. But the image that Catherine projects of herself in the correspondence shows that she entertained this view of history even before the revolution. Naturally, she would not have minded being seen as a great man herself. In 1780, she already writes somewhat disingenuously that Quote, I will believe that I am neither the first nor the last person of any century, but that this is the century which precedes the one that the brothers George will have shaped. By the brothers George, she means her diplomatic opponents of the time, the English, whom she accuses of petty politicking and meddlesome foreign policy. They are the antithesis of good taste in ideas, behavior, and even style. She frequently accuses George III of being bon citoyen, that is, bourgeois, unsophisticated, and unable to keep up with the grandeur in government and style of courts like Louis XIV. Therefore, for Catherine, neither this century nor the next will rise above such vulgarity. Grimm, meanwhile, having picked up on how to flatter Catherine, calls her the greatest princess of this century and of many others, and jokingly accuses her of being out of touch with her century, because she does not take part in the current fashion for trinkets, le colifichet. 
Catherine appreciates this last compliment, asking, is it my fault that I don't share my, country, my century's taste? She returns to a favorite joking theme of the correspondence, concerning her disobedience as a child and her insistence on behaving as a perverse wit, or as gauche, as I've said before. She takes all of her lessons in her own manner, as she does when reading the Encyclopédie. This time, though, she finds the lessons of her teachers helpful and adopts them as her own. She says, I think that Mademoiselle Cardel and Monsieur Wagner, her teachers, were from the previous age, or the 17th century. They preached the best to me, so much that the perverse wit has gone to seek out the best wherever it can be found. The best in art is not Trinkets, but Raphael, who nonetheless would be abandoned if there were something better. Catherine's historical and personal narratives thus coincide. No time has seen enlightenment spread broadly enough to be called enlightened, but here and there, the world has seen individuals who know how to stand out and achieve the best on a generally bleak historical landscape. If the 17th century seems to have been a brighter age, that is only because it had an unusually high density of such star figures, not because of an inherent philosophical spirit or general diffusion of enlightenment. Catherine, faithful to her self-characterization as, practical, as a practical but unique individual, taking what she can from all sources, resist the notion that she, or Russia, might pertain to an abstract, all-encompassing phenomenon like the Enlightenment. By contrast, Grimm, the supposed anti-philosophe, elaborates for Catherine a third narrative of a kind of Enlightenment that survives the ravages of the French Revolution, and he assigns to Russia a very prominent role as a haven for the Enlightenment. Before, during, and after the reign of terror in France, in 1790, 93, and 96, Grimm returns to the same prophecy, namely that the Enlightenment, which was destroyed by the revolution in Western Europe, will nevertheless be carried on by two empires, the newborn United States of America and Russia. He cites l'Abbé Galliani, a corresponding member of the Parisian Salon and Philosophe Milieu, who apparently claimed that Russian would become the language of courts, while the French language would be reduced to a dead language like Latin. The revolutionaries, according to Grimm, accelerated this process by alienating the French from the great tradition of literature that culminated in Catherine's great hero, Voltaire. He says, this frenzy corrupts even language with alarming rapidity, such that the language of Racine and Voltaire will very soon seem foreign. Because of the revolutionaries, enlightenment will no longer be found in this heart of Europe that will be covered in, dark, in thick darkness. Rather, he says, it is evident that on the one hand, arts, letters, order, culture, politeness, with all the pleasures of ordered and social life, will flee toward America and there will found their empire. On the other hand, they will be confined within the Russian empire, which will become the center on the edge of Europe, and the language of which will then reign over all cultivated peoples. If the philosophes' radical ideas about reducing the power of the church and despots are only one version of the alignment, Grimm offers another, namely a belief in culture and civilization broadly defined as an ordered world with an elite that engages in and gradually diffuses artistic, literary, and social progress. Grimm explicitly labels this the enlightenment that Catherine's Russia will carry on, building the metaphor of light in each clause. Russia will carry culture to the east. Barbarity will flee before its torch. A new sun will shine over these fortunate lands, will invigorate them, and will carry its light into Asia. The choice of America and Russia has much to intrigue. An outside observer might claim that America represents the realization of many of the later philosophic political ideals, while Catherine's Russia represents the older enlightenment of enlightened despotism and elite culture, 
but Grimm does not make that distinction, instead positing both empires as bearers of his non-philosoph, but rather Voltairean enlightenment of culture and order. Catherine responds quite warily to Grimm's vision. Having written much of her letter of February 1794 about three weddings that had recently taken place at court, she laughs, I'm talking to you about this nonsense, when I should have responded to the superb paragraphs in your letter concerning the prophecy of the Abbe Galliani sitting upon his oracle stool. Catherine remains faithful to her role of being a perverse spirit, responding intentionally inappropriately to anything that smacks of edification. Here she tacitly references again Voltaire's oft-repeated notion that the Enlightenment will come from the North and take over the declining South. If, as she says, they've been saying for a long time that the southern countries of Europe are in decline, the only way to save them is to find a superior man who can rise above his age, a siècle. As the adjective superbe demonstrates, Catherine finds Grimm's plans for continued Voltairean Enlightenment in Russia to be flattering and attractive, but she resists, as always, such grand schemes especially ones associated with specific systems of thought like that of the physiocrat Galliani. It turns out that if Catherine did not see herself as part of an Enlightenment movement, and certainly not as a member of the sect of politicized philosophes, she did view herself as a representative of the Enlightenment ideas associated with Voltaire, like a weakening of the church and a belief in the ability of great leaders to bring about great cultural achievements. Grimm went further, translating these ideals into a recognizable historical narrative of the Enlightenment in which Russia has an essential role to play. To ask if one of these versions of the Enlightenment represents the true Enlightenment would be futile. Rather, all we can say is that Catherine and Grimm struggled with the question of what the Enlightenment was and whether or not it was in Russia, just as we are today. Thank you. I'm sure we can cover